This morning we come in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 to 14. So we're considering together, with the Lord's help, Hebrews 10, verses 8 to 14. The title of our sermon is Sanctified by One Offering. It begins in verse 8. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. When God gave his son, he gave what is the very best, so that when a sinner is given the Lord Jesus Christ, there is to him or her, Absolutely no loss. In losing all else, they suffer no loss at all. Why? Because we are given what is better. We are given what is the very best. And so here, you can imagine these Jews, these Hebrew Christians who are being taught after millennia of engaging in the various ceremonial institutions that these have been laid aside. You can imagine the sense that they would have growing out of their daily and experience and their whole lifelong endeavors as well as that of their fathers. You can imagine the temptation to feel some loss, that what was so familiar and for many of them so precious and so integral to the ins and outs, the warp and woof of their daily life, to have these things laid aside. But was it a loss? Is it a loss? Well, this whole epistle has been underlining the fact that it is not. And indeed, that something uh, far superior has been given in the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've noted here uh, recently in the last couple few chapters how much better indeed we have it. We are told that we have a better high priest, that we have a better covenant. We've been told that we have a better service, that we have a far better sanctuary, that we have better worship than was known previously, that we have a better mediator. And in the immediate verses that we've been considering, we've discovered that we have a better sacrifice, the supreme superlative sacrifice in the person and atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in chapter 10, really verses 1 to 14, of which we come to the the conclusion uh, here this morning, we've had on one hand the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices set before us. We saw it especially in verses 1 to 4, and then it's been reinforced in verses 5 and, and following the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices, that is, their insufficiency to atone for sin in themselves. But added to that, alongside it, has been the full sufficiency of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some may be tempted at this point to think, we've been hearing an awful lot, granted from different angles and with different details, the same theme for quite a while now. But you'll notice that as we read through the book of of Hebrews, as we go through these various sections, you will never find an apology for repetition. There is nowhere in in these chapters an apology 
for the repetition of these themes that the Lord has been setting before us, hammering home the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, think of it this way. You can go out uh, at nighttime uh, with uh, a clear sky, no clouds, and the, the heavens, especially if you live outside of town, the heavens are filled with stars. You have the moon there, of course, and planets and other things as well, and you take it all in. You say, wow, it's amazing. It's beautiful. You come back the next night and the next night and week after week. And in fact, you can live to be an old man or old woman and spend your whole life going out and looking up into that sky. And you think, well, it's the same sky that I've been seeing since I was a little child. And granted, you can take a telescope and zoom in on one quarter of the heavens and focus on that and then perhaps zoom in on another section at another time. But it never gets old. And it never loses its awe-inspiring influence uh, upon us. And so it is with this whole theme of the supremacy, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his atoning work, and so on. The fact is that a minister could get up and preach morning, noon, and night every day throughout his entire ministry and never, ever exhaust all that there is to see and know. Indeed, eternity will not enable us to exhaust the unfolding riches of grace that are to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice in the section that we have here in front of us this morning that the emphasis in our text falls on the single sacrifice of Christ. The single sacrifice of Christ. Verse 10, it speaks about the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. In verse 12, it speaks about uh, the fact that he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. In verse 14, it speaks about, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So the emphasis falls on the single sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to note three things this morning uh, with the Lord's help. First of all, the plan, the plan of a single sacrifice. Verses 8, 9, and 10. We just read verses 8 and 9. It goes on in verse 10. By the which, uh, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here we have the plan of a single sacrifice. We considered in, in, in quite a lot of detail last Lord's Day um, the quotation from Psalm 40 that we found in verses 5, 6, and 7. And now uh, the Lord is drawing conclusions from all that we uh, sought to unpack and explore in that quotation here in Hebrews chapter 10. He's drawing some conclusions. He's speaking about these Levitical sacrifices, as this passage says, that were offered by the law, that is, offered by divine prescription, offered by the appointment and ordering and command of God himself. And so he says these, these Levitical sacrifices were not intended in themselves ever to atone for sin and to save the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in fact, as we've seen in Hebrews, even the Old Testament believer understood this. And we've seen it in a variety of places in the Psalms, in the Pentateuch, in the prophets, the way in which that is made clear from the Old Testament itself. Why? 
because it was never their design. God's plan and his design in giving these sacrifices was never to the end that the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and so on and so forth would ever in themselves be sufficient or adequate to actually atone for the sins of God's people, to satisfy divine justice and reconciling sinners unto himself. No, their design is seen in their fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are pointers, they are pictures, they are signposts, they are types that are leading us to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we're told in the previous verses, the Lord Jesus Christ knew this, of course, as the eternal Son, and that even in coming as the incarnate Word, he affirms it, that the words of Psalm 40 are the words of Jesus Christ. They are the words of our Lord, who acknowledges these are not the things, these sacrifices are not the things in which the Father took pleasure, but rather he had prepared for him a a body, and that Christ had come to do the Father's will, to perform the service that had been worked out in the councils of the triune God within that covenant of redemption, to provide for the elect a perfect obedience demanded in the law, and to pay the penalty for all of their law-breaking. And so this is the plan, the plan of a single sacrifice. You'll notice the language here that it says in our text, verse 9, he taketh away the first, that or so that he may establish the second. He takes away the first, that is the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices, in order that he might establish the second, that is, Christ's single sacrifice in the place of his people. The language, he takes away the first, the language there is quite strong. In in chapter 8, it talked about how the the Old Testament ceremonies were passing away, they're kind of fading away in the coming of the Lord Jesus. The language here is much stronger, right? He taketh away the first. It's, it's the language that's used elsewhere in the taking away of human life, right? A person's life is taken away. In other words, it would be equivalent to saying it's dead, that all of this, the, the, the ceremonial institutions which prefigured Jesus Christ are now dead and void and useless any longer, that indeed God has buried them to never be resurrected after the coming of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in in the words that we have, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What, What will are we talking about? Jesus' words in Psalm 40 are, I, I, lo, I come to do thy will. Right? By which will? It's the will of the Father. The, the, the determination of the Father, the agreement and transactions that had been agreed upon but in the council of, of the Trinity itself. Jesus had come performing the Father's commandment, fulfilling, doing, leaving nothing undone of all that had been prescribed to him. And this, of course, included the offering of himself as the superior single sacrifice in order to 
reconcile sinners unto God. All of this is rested upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it is laid upon his back. Jesus comes to undertake and to do all of this himself. Inasmuch as it was man who had revolted against his creator, the God of glory, inasmuch as it was man who had trampled under his feet and smashed to smithereens the law of God in defiance and rebellion against the Lord. So the Lord Jesus Christ is man. The eternal Son assumes to himself a human nature so that he is both true God and true man, that in his humanity he has a true body and a reasonable soul, that Christ as man came to meet the demands of the law, to fulfill and obey every point flawlessly without sin, in order that he might be made under the law, in order that he might fulfill the law. The fact is that there is no other who could or can fulfill the demands of the Father's will. There is no other. There is no other son or daughter of Adam that is capable of doing so. As mere men, there is no angelic being with all of their power and glory. Even the unfallen and elect angels, completely incapable of undertaking such a work as this. There is only one, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he alone, because he must be God, and he must be man, in order for God and man to be reconciled, in order for his atoning death upon the cross to have the infinite merit that is necessary in order to save poor helpless sinners such as ourselves. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That word sanctified, children, you'll, you'll know it from your catechism, but we need to, we need to clarify the fact that the word sanctified can be used in both a narrow way and in a broader way, and it can be used in, um, it can be applied in, in different circumstances. So the word sanctified really is the idea of holiness, right? Our English word for sanctified comes from the Latin sanctus, holy, right? So it's holified, if you will. It's not a word, but you get the concept. It's speaking of holiness. And so when we think of sanctification, we might think of it in contrast to justification, right? That act of God's free grace in which here the poor helpless sinner who's, who's in themselves under the wrath of God, they're, they're brought into acceptance with God through the imputation of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which they receive by faith alone, and so on and so forth, right? We then think of sanctification as that work of God's Spirit, that ongoing process in the life of the, saint, of the justified sinner, who is from one degree to another transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, dying unto sin, living unto righteousness, being conformed to his image, and so on. So we think of sanctification, we think of that process of being made holy, being made more like 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is perfectly right and appropriate and indeed important. Here, the word sanctified is not referring in the first instance to that process of the ministry of the Spirit who is transforming the Christian into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's not in the first instance what is being referenced here. You'll, you'll see the word sanctified in chapter 10 being used in a different way, which I'll define, not only in our text, but for example, when we were reading earlier in, in verse 29, uh, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under the foot of trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of, of grace. So here we take this concept of holiness and holiness includes both separation, the concept of separation, as well as the concept of purity. Right? Holiness includes both of, of these ideas uh, within it. And so here, what's being described is something definitive. It's, it's describing the fact that God's people have been set apart in terms of their position before God. They're set apart as accepted before the Lord. They're set apart unto God. They are brought near to the Lord and in the believer through union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this condition of permanent peace and of immediate access to God. There's this great cleavage that takes place in which the sinner is separated from sin and devoted wholly uh, unto, unto the Lord. And so this is the description that's especially coming to the fore here. You notice that all that God willed for the believer's good is communicated through the offering of Jesus Christ. All in the eternal resources of the infinite God, all that he has determined to bring by way of good, every token, every mercy, every degree of goodness, every blessing, all of it comes to us mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so there's this plan of a single sacrifice. It's a sovereign plan. God's purpose to take away sin, to remove sin as the barrier that separates men from the Lord. It's his sovereign will that is being worked out in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's determined it planned it. He's the one who's undertaken it. He's the one who's implemented it. He's the one who's brought it to pass. He's the one who's secured all that is obtained in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This sets the glory of God front and center before us. And as a consequence, man is stripped of all glory. There is no glory left to man at all. No glory left to us at all. We cannot take to ourselves any degree of credit or merit, any degree of glory whatsoever. Let him who glories glory in the Lord because it's his sovereign grace and sovereign plan. The origin of salvation is in God's sovereign will. The means of salvation 
is in his provision of the satisfaction that is found in his son on behalf of his elect people. And so here is the plan of a single sacrifice. Sin is like Mount Everest on the landscape, our personal landscape of life. Sin is Mount Everest. It's, it's the greatest barrier. It is the greatest need that we face. You know, if you listen to the, the drivel that is touted as wisdom in our generation and in the generations that preceded us, people will say, well, the problem is poverty. You know, the problem is people need money. And if they had money, then they'd be raised from their their terrible circumstances, and then they would act better and do better, and everything would be better. And the fact is, that's garbage, right? You, the government can print money out of thin air all day long and make everybody a millionaire. It will never solve the problem, man's basic problem. You say, well, education, people are just ignorant. If they could just be educated and we can get them the right knowledge, then they'll know what they need to know, and everything will be better, just more education. The answer is no. You can, the most educated people are some of the ones who are the most evil people in the history of, of the world. You think, well, if you get people healthy and help strengthen their bodies, then everything will be, will be better. And the fact is that you can be the richest person and the healthiest person, and you can be the most educated person and be absolutely at war with the God of heaven in a state of acute depravity, moral degradation, and be under the wrath of God and perish forever in eternity. Right? These are not the great needs. The great need, the greatest of all needs of mankind is dealing with sin, his sin. And this is precisely what the Lord has undertaken to address in the person of his son. He has sent his son as the sin bearer. He has sent his son as the sacrifice for sin. He sent his son as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sent his son as the atoning, as the atonement for sin. The Lord Jesus Christ in the perfect plan of God is the single sacrifice that answers man's greatest need. The question is, seeing that, knowing that, being shown it, and being persuaded of it, what are you waiting for? Some of you have heard Christ crucified preached dozens of times. Some of you hundreds of times. There may be those here who have pre heard Christ crucified preached thousands of times. What is it? precisely that you're waiting for because there is no more evidence forthcoming all of the evidence that god has given to us in his book all that has been revealed to us in his bible is more than could be desired far more than would ever be needed the fact is that you don't need more time to think about it you don't need more time to consider it you don't need more time in order to work out the details, and so on. In all of your waiting, there's not going to be a second sacrifice for sin to reinforce the first. It's once for all. It is the single sacrifice, and it alone 
is the provision God makes for the salvation of your miserable soul. Everything hangs on God's plan of a single sacrifice. And so, my dear friends, the Lord comes in the gospel, in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's saying, see him, look unto him, look upon him, behold in him the wisdom of God, and being able to answer and cancel and remove and deliver and save from sin. Here is God's infinite wisdom. He remains perfectly just by punishing all of the sins of his elect people in the substitute of his son. Here is the wisdom of God who is just and yet also merciful in granting out of his sovereign free grace forgiveness in the display of divine love in the provision of a substitute for those who come to him by faith. And so we have the plan of a single sacrifice. Secondly, we have the superiority of the single sacrifice. Verses 11, 12, and 13, the superiority of the single sacrifice. And every, high, uh, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Last week, in opening the, the previous text, we noted in the introduction that we are given an invitation in verses 5 to 7, as we are in Psalm 40. We're given an invitation to listen in on a conversation within the Trinity. That we are hearing the Son addressing the Father. And we worked out some of the implications of that. But I want to put, put two things together here in these verses. Because what we heard, first of all, last week, was the last recorded words of the Son to the Father at the time of his leaving heaven at the incarnation. Verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith. And then we have the language of, of Psalm 40. And so, in terms of what is revealed to us, the last words that the Son spoke to the Father in coming into this world as the incarnate word were these words, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, body hast thou prepared, lo, I come to do thy will, and so on. But here, in the verses that we have before us this morning, there is an allusion to the first recorded words of the Father to the Son upon his return to heaven. That when the sun ascends and passes through the clouds and comes into the open expanse of the heavenly glory, the first recorded words of the Father to the Son are the words of Psalm 110, which are, which are referenced here in verse 13. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The last words of the Son to the Father Lo, I come to do thy will. The first words of the Father to the Son upon his return to heaven, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies 
thy, thy footstool. But you'll notice in these verses, verses 11, 12, and 13, we have what amounts to really the, the last, the final contrast and comparison between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Old Testament ceremonial system. We've seen a number of these contrasts and comparisons. This is the last one given to us here in verses 11 and 12. Notice the contrast. On one side, you have the language of every priest. So it's referring to many priests, right? There were lots of them, one after another, whole succession of them, every one of them, every priest. And on the other hand, we have this man. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it's just he. Man is supplied. It could be this priest, we could even say. So you have many priests, and we have this man on the other side. You have, in terms of the Old Testament, daily ministering, offering oftentimes, whereas in contrast, he had offered, past tense. One sacrifice, right? There, they, they, it refers to the same sacrifices. So there obviously is a diversity of sacrifices. You have the burnt offering, you have sin offering, trespass offering, and so on, meal offering. But he's saying these same, same sacrifices are offered over and over and over again. We saw that in Numbers 28. Every single day there's sacrifices, the same ones. Every single Sabbath, the same ones. And then throughout different points in the year, there's appointed sacrifices that were to be added. And we have all of the same ones happening over and over and over again. But here, by way of contrast, there is one singular sacrifice. In terms of the Old Testament sacrifices, we're told in this passage, they never took away sins. Whereas Jesus, with reference to Jesus, his sacrifice was for sins forever. Adequate to take away all of these sins. Another point of comparison is that the Old Testament priests stood See the language there? Every, and every priest standeth. Now, this is interesting because children, you know, we've heard a lot about the tabernacle uh, in our study of Hebrews. We've looked at some of the details with regards to the furniture. Think with me, children. Think back. You have the, you have the outer court, of course, and then you have within the, the building itself the, the holy place and then the inner sanctum, the most holy place. And you start to think of what's inside the tabernacle, or the temple, which replaced it. You got the table of showbread, you got the candlestick, you got the golden incense altar, you got, of course, the altar and uh, the, the um, ark, and so on and so forth. But as you think through the furniture, as you do a catalog of the furniture of the tabernacle or the temple, isn't it interesting? There's no seat. There's no chair within the tabernacle. Right? They stood ministering. And the, the picture here is that they, they didn't sit down, right? In contrast to Jesus who sat down at the right hand of God. And so for the Old Testament, there's lots of bustle. There's lots of busyness. Um, their work is never complete. They're always going. They're, they're, they're tending to the oil. They're tending to the showbread. They're tending to the sacrifices, sprinkling blood. They're offering incense. And so it's continual, it's constant, and, and it's never finished. And when the morning sacrifice is done, well, then the evening sacrifice has to be offered, and then the morning sacrifice has to be offered again. And there's all the ones that come in between. And so there's this continual work. 
Whereas with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told he sat down at the right hand of God. Right? His work is complete. It is finished. It is done. It's never to be repeated. It doesn't have to be ongoing and so on. Now, if you're thinking really carefully, and this didn't dawn on me until late in my studies, actually, there is a seat inside the tabernacle. We refer to it as the mercy seat. And it is set over top of the ark, over which the cherubim hover. It's the picture of the throne. It's the throne of God, symbolized at the center of heaven. The priests were never allowed to touch that ark. They would die. Some did. They were never allowed to climb up and sit down on the mercy seat. But the Lord Jesus Christ does. What's prefigured inside the Holy of Holies is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes, he ascends into the highest heavens, and he sits down upon the throne that was only prefigured in the, in the tabernacle. He sat down upon the throne. He alone is able to do so. But again, it reinforces the completion of his, of his work. This reinforces the inadequacies of the Old Testament sacrifices. It reinforces the full sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. If all this Old Testament stuff is, is, is inadequate to actually accomplish anything ultimately in itself, how much more all of the mimicry? I don't tire of making this point. All of the mimicry of Rome with its make-believe priests and sacrifices and incense and all of the other gibberish that it, that it, that it pawns off on, on, on poor, hopeless souls in its idolatry. Utterly bankrupt, devoid of any ability to accomplish anything. Indeed, what it accomplishes is the damnation of souls and the provocation of God, inciting the wrath of Almighty God. The fact that Christ is in heaven proves that his work is done, that it has been accepted of the Father, that there is nothing more that is needed, that there is nothing more that is possible to be accomplished. Right? The impossibility of the repetition is reinforced. Here is the one who was born in a manger of all places, and a little town in Bethlehem. Here is the one who, in his maturity, had no place to lay his head. Even the foxes had that. He didn't. Here is the one who was so poverty-stricken that he was buried in a borrowed tomb when he died. And now he is given the place far above even the archangel given a place of supremacy that excels all others. Here he is in glorified humanity. Here is the God-man who has 
pass through the heavens and above all of the angelic beings with a glorified humanity seated at the right hand of God upon the pinnacle, the apex of heaven on his own throne. As we've said often, quoting one of the Puritans, human dust sits upon the throne of heaven. But why is he there? He is there for his people. He is there as a mediator. He is there as the representative of his people. He is there as the forerunner of his people. He is there as the triumphant victor for his people. He is there because he is ruling for the good of Zion. He's ruling for the good of his people. And that that needs to be personally appropriate. That needs to be personally applied to you, my believing friends. Those of you who are Christians, you need to recognize, you know, this, this, this glory, this glamour, all of the beauty, the, 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 the breathtaking concepts of Christ as the God-man seated upon the highest heavens, above the highest heavens, to be able to recognize he is ruling from that apex for you and your good. You in particular, you individually. You as a, as a specific believer, he's holding the reins and wielding his scepter and exercising his dominion for the good of his people. This is the seventh reference we've had now to Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. Christ's unlimited power, Christ's far-reaching dominion. Here is the one who will sit at his father's right hand until he makes all of his enemies his footstool either taking his elect people who left in their, in their fallen nature, our enemies, and subduing them unto himself, bringing them savingly uh, to himself, or, on the other hand, subjugating all who revolt against him, defeating them, placing them under his feet. He does both. And his glory is seen in both. His glory is seen in saving sinners who are born enemies. And his glory is seen in obliterating and destroying those who will not bow in faith and repentance to him. We think of blood and we think of him soaked in his own shed blood. His blood which was shed for his people. And there's glory in that. There's There's beauty in the blood of Jesus Christ. But we're given another picture. In the prophets, in the book of Revelation, where the vesture of the Lord Jesus Christ is stained with the blood of his enemies. Soaked in the blood of those whom he's defeated. That too is equally glorious. That too is beautiful. Christ reigning until he makes all of his enemies his footstool. The passage says, from henceforth expecting or waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. He's waiting because it's God's appointment that he's waiting. God's appointment. God has promised, I'm going to make all of your enemies your footstool. And he's waiting for the complete fulfillment of all that that entails. It's not necessary that it would be that way. He could have done it in a second. 
He could have done it in a millisecond, a nanosecond. He could have defeated and subjugated and triumphed under and brought all enemies under his feet. But according to the infinite wisdom of the triune God, he has appointed it to be so, that he would reign. And that while reigning, he's drawing sinners, he's advancing the cause of Zion, he's building his kingdom, he's defeating his, his enemies. So Christ waits expectantly, waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. And so too we are to wait with patience. You think, well, why, 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 why all this persecution, why all this suffering, why all these setbacks, why these difficulties, why this deformation and retreat from the truth and light that the church at times faces? Why is the church broken with schism and false doctrine and false worship and other such things? The Lord says, wait, wait with patience. This is the Father's will. This is the Father's way. And everything that he's promised, he will indeed deliver. All the enemies, yes, sin and, and death and Satan and hell and all of the enemies of this world and all of those who have opposed God and his people and persecuted them and sought to promote all of the wickedness that opposes his law and so on and so forth. He'll destroy it all. He'll remove it all. He'll, he'll, he'll subjugate all of it. See it vanquished. By the power of God, we're to wait. The Lord's will in his way, Christ will have the victory. In Christ, there are boundless stores of grace and strength. What a fool we are to turn from him to self, to turn from his infinite resources to ourselves and our own design and plan and power and so on. This is a declaration whether we acknowledge it or not, it's an open declaration of our lack of confidence in his work and in his love. No, we are to sit at the feet of the boundless stores of grace and strength that are to be found in him. But there's a warning here too, isn't there? Because he does have enemies. There are enemies here who are under the wrath of God this morning, alienated from the Lord, not in a state of saving grace, in a state of sin. And there's a warning that the Lord has given. This isn't just a theoretical concept. This is very personal. When he says that he will make all of his enemies his footstool, that description of his enemies consists of, is comprised of, individual people. Like you. And like me. Either you come, my friend, to bow by faith and repentance at the throne of grace, under the preaching of the gospel, on Christ's own terms, or you will writhe under his feet as his footstool. There's a warning to turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's with that as well a comfort for the Lord's people. There is no fear of foes. All of the foes of the church, of the Christian, of Christ, there's no fear of foes. He will subdue every last one of them. It would be right for the Christian to think this way. You see an institution, you see a government, you see individuals, 
They're exercising power and they're using their resources in order to defy God, in order to cast off Christ's crown rights. You see them persecuting the Lord's people, um, damaging the cause of Zion and the church, promoting all sorts of blasphemy and wickedness and so on. You see all these things. The Christian should look upon all that and say, ah, yes, another footstool. This one too shall be the footstool of the great king. Mr. Footstool or institutions that are footstools. He'll subdue every one of them. It should encourage us in terms of the prospects of missionary enterprise, shouldn't it? Despotism shall be disarmed. Heathen shall be made heralds of the glory of Jesus Christ. God is far more concerned about this than we are. He's far more concerned about the kingdom of his son, the glory of his son, the salvation of his people, the advance of his own cause. He's far more concerned about the discipling of the nations than we ever could be. And he's guaranteed that it will be brought to pass. That should put wind in our sails. That should give us boldness and encouragement to go on in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to preaching the gospel to every creature under heaven, knowing that the Lord has promised such to his son, that the heathen would be given to him as his inheritance. Well, thirdly and lastly, we have the finality of the single sacrifice. Verse 14, the finality of the single sacrifice. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In the 19th century, after the close of a worship service in Philadelphia, a man came to the door and addressed the minister and said, I don't like your preaching. I don't like hearing you preach all the time about the cross, uh, Christ's death uh, upon the cross. It would be far better if you would preach Christ as our teacher. Be far better if you preached Christ as our example. We, as a people, would profit so much more. The minister said to the man, well, would you be willing to follow him? If, if, if I preached Christ as, as an example, would you be willing to follow him? And the man said, yes, I would. I would follow him if you preached him as an example. The minister said, well, then let us take the first step. He did no sin. He did no sin. So can, can you take this step? Can you take this first step? The man looked a bit confused, perplexed, maybe irritated, and he said, well, no, obviously, no. Uh, I do sin. I can admit that. I'll, I'll acknowledge that. Minister said, Well, then, your first need is not Christ as an example, but as a Savior. He's cutting through the, the thin film, the veneer that the man was presenting. You need a Savior far before you need an example. Here is the finality of the single sacrifice. He says, For, he's drawing a conclusion of the whole, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfected is, 
is completed. He hath completed. He, he hath consummated. He hath finished. It's, it's final, right? He's not speaking about his believers perfected in glory, sinless at this point, but the, he's speaking of what is objective, right? He hath perfected or completed, finished, finalized forever. One offering. One offering conveys infinite merits for all of his people so that they are able to enter into the present enjoyment. Every last one, little boys, little girls, old men, old women, people in far-flung places around the world and throughout the history of the world. He's perfected all of this, completed it all in one single sacrifice so that the believer in all ages their right is secured, their right to access before the Lord, acceptance before the Lord. They have the title in hand, and the title has been secured by the offering of Christ. They're brought into possession of these things. Nothing to be amended, nothing to be added, nothing that needs to be completed. It's final in this single sacrifice. For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are, are sanctified, that are set apart unto God. And all of those who are set apart unto God, sanctified in that sense, will indeed be sanctified in the more common sense that we use the term. The Lord, he will bring forward growth in grace. He will bring forward in his redeemed people likeness to Jesus Christ, spiritual maturity. There's hope that he who began the good work in you will bring it and its outworking and application within your soul to perfection because Christ's perfecting work, his, his accomplished work, will result in your purification. And when you're getting the stew kicked out of you some days in your battles with sin and feel all of the as you ought, humiliation and consternation and conviction that comes with that. The Lord lifts up your little chin in the midst of the fray and says, look, that one offering, it perfected, it accomplished, it completed everything you need. The Lord is able, he will deliver and does deliver and he will bring forward and mature and strengthen and shape and conform and enable you to die to sins and enable you to grow in righteousness. There's hope that the Lord gives to his people. This offering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is of unspeakable value and unspeakable power because it's completed, because it's final and therefore all-sufficient. The Lord Jesus Christ offered himself but he didn't offer himself for himself. He offered himself for his people. The terminus, the end, the aim, the goal from the beginning was his people. The salvation of sinners. Reconciliation of sinners to God. He offered himself for his people. We can look at the grave the wrath of God, the just punishment for sin, the devouring flame. And the Lord says, Believer, you are saved from all of this and more 
by a single sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not allow yourself to be unmoved. Do not allow yourself the wiggle room of being unaffected by such a revolutionary and world-transforming truth. He was made sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is his blood that is able to cleanse us from all sin. The finality of the single sacrifice. This shouts completion. This shouts sufficiency. This shouts complete adequacy. This tells us that we can hang everything on what Christ has accomplished, that we need not wait, we need not look, we need not worry, we need not wring our hands. We can be absolutely certain that his once for all sacrifice for sin is alone able to save us to the uttermost. Let's stand together for prayer. Lord our God in heaven, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. Give us minds, O Lord, to take in. Give us affections to be inflamed with love. Give us all of this. Grant, Lord, that the that Christ crucified set before us would not fall upon us as dead souls who are deaf and dumb, blind to these heavenly realities. Bring, O Lord, that word home and may it pierce through all of the layers of unbelief and disobedience, hardness and rebellion. And may it, O Lord, pierce May it pierce in order that it might heal, that we would discover that in the Redeemer is all our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name.